0: If you have your Bible here this morning, Revelation chapter 12 is where you should be. We're going to be looking at a message entitled, The Cosmic Conflict. And a great sign appeared in heaven, and a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains, and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, and cast them down to the earth. And a dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it, and she gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was called up to God and To his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she has been nourished for 1,260 days. Now, in ancient China, there was a general by the name of Sun Tzu. He wrote a timeless work called The Art of War. It's a textbook, if you will, on the tactics of warfare. And in that book, he makes this statement. He said, all warfare is based on deception. Hence, when we are able to attack, we must seem unable. When using our forces, we must appear inactive. When we are near, we must make the enemy believe that we are far away. And when we are far away, we must make him believe we are near. All warfare based on deception. There's probably no better illustration of that than what happened in 1943 as World War II raged across Europe. In 1943, the British planned an elaborate deception. It was codenamed Operation Mincemeat. And the goal of the ruse was to disguise the Allied invasion of Sicily and to trick the Germans into thinking that the Allies were going to land in Greece... Instead of Sicily. And here's how they did it. The Brits obtained the corpse of a deceased vagrant and dressed him up in full military uniform. The personal items on the body identified the deceased man as the fictitious Captain William Martin. And the Brits forged fake classified documents, they placed them in a briefcase and handcuffed that case to the body. These top secret memos suggested that the allies were planning an invasion of Greece. And so with the body cleverly disguised, the British Navy transported that corpse by submarine and dumped it off of the coast of Spain. And soon enough, the Germans discovered that dummy captain. They found the documents, they deciphered them, and they began to move troops and resources to Greece in preparation for what they thought was going to be a massive invasion when in reality, the real war was taking place at Sicily. So the Allied invasion of Sicily was a smashing success due to deception and the invisible war that took place behind the scenes. And if there were ever a parallel to Revelation 12, it would have to be Operation Mincemeat. Because in this chapter, we have a picture of the invisible war that's been going on behind the scenes, behind the front lines since the very beginning of time. C.S. Lewis, the great Christian writer and thinker, said this, There is no neutral ground in the universe. Every square inch, every split second is claimed by God and counterclaimed by Satan. And so Revelation 12 is a reminder that this Christian life takes place not on a playground, but on a battleground. And that we are combatants in a cosmic conflict. In Revelation 12, which we just read, we saw John's new vision. And there he gets a panorama of spiritual warfare. In fact, we read of three characters that have been involved in this invisible war. We read of a celestial woman whom we will learn is Israel and a royal child whom we will see is none other than Jesus Christ and a fiery red dragon whom we know as Satan. And so this passage is about the cosmic conflict just as Operation Mincemeat was a conflict that happened behind the scenes. So, too, in Revelation 12, we have a picture behind the scenes of history that tells us about the battle that's been raging. Now, let's break down this chapter because it is very complex and easy to lose your way. We first see, number one, a symbolic portrait of Israel. That's what we read in verses 1 and 2, the symbolic portrait of Israel. Now, there's many differing opinions about the identity of this celestial woman that we read about. She's great with child. The Catholics favor that this is the Virgin Mary. Some also suggest that this is the church, but as we will see through our study, neither of those views fit the context nor the symbolism. There's a few telltale secrets Uh, features, though, that help us understand that this woman is a picture, a portrait, of the nation Israel. How do we know that? Well, look in verse 1 again and you will see the woman's clothing. It says there, A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun and with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown, or a garland, of twelve stars. Now, this heavenly description of this woman says that she's accompanied by the sun and the moon and twelve stars. This echoes from Genesis 37. And you remember in that passage, it's Joseph's dream. One of his many dreams that he had as a young man. Genesis 37 verse 9, He dreamed another dream and told his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun and the moon and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. Now, if you can remember back to Genesis 37... We have a 17-year-old young man, Joseph, who will one day be the prime minister in Egypt. And God gives him as a young man a prophetic dream in which he sees his family in symbol through his 11 brothers, the stars, and his mother, Rachel, there is the moon, and his father, Jacob, as the sun. His family would one day bow down and revere him. And so we see that this symbolism taken from Genesis 37 now appears here in Revelation 12. And the sun, the moon, and the stars with this woman are a picture of Israel. Moreover, those 12 stars above the head of the woman correspond to Israel's 12 tribes. So we see the woman's clothing. And then we read in verse 2 about the woman's cries. It says in verse 2, And then being with child, she cried out in labor and in pain, to give birth. If you study your Old Testament, you find out very quickly that one of the pictures that God uses to describe Israel is a woman in travail. You can track that down in other places like Isaiah twenty-six verses seventeen and eighteen, Jeremiah four thirty-one, Micah four ten. But just like a pregnant woman who experiences labor pains, so too for many hundreds of years the nation of Israel was in distress, waiting for their messianic deliverer to be born. And so the hopes and dreams of the Jews is that a Messiah would come who would rescue them from the oppression of the Gentile nations and from those who made life difficult on them. By the way, the fact that this woman is pregnant and going to give birth shows us that this can't be the church because the church doesn't give birth to the Messiah or to the Christ. It's the reverse. So we see here, In our passage, a symbolic portrait of Israel. Are you following with me? We're going down into the rabbit hole. It gets a little bit deeper. Then we read number two of the satanic persecutor of Israel. Notice in this passage, there's no mistaking the identity of the dragon. He's none other than Satan, the great villain of God's divine Drama And his malevolence is targeted toward the child and toward the woman. Now we read about several details concerning Satan or the dragon. We see, first off, the dragon's dominating power in verse 3. And another side appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon, fiery red, having seven heads and ten horns, and seven diadems on his heads. What does all of that mean? Well, the red of course, corresponds to bloodshed and there's been a path of violence that has followed Satan everywhere he has gone. We see there that the seven heads is a picture of completeness. So seven in the Bible is a number of completeness. And those seven heads convey the idea of a full intellect, a genius intellect. Satan knows about you and I. He knows about our weaknesses. He was there in the beginning and he knows how to study mankind and to trip him up and make him fall into sin. Then we see that he has horns, and from the prophecies of Daniel, we know that a horn is a symbol in prophecy of a political authority, and Satan does indeed influence the men on the earth in positions of power. Then lastly, we see those diadems. That's a picture of his spiritual dominion. You know, the Bible says in Ephesians 2.2 2, that Satan is the prince of the power of the air. 1 John 5.19 says that the whole world lies under the sway of the wicked one. And so we see the dominating power of the dragon. And then in verse 4, we read of his dishonored partners. Now for a brief moment, we go back to the very beginning of creation when Lucifer became Satan. Satan wasn't always Satan. In fact, the Bible tells us in Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14 that God created him as a beautiful angel. He was an anointed cherub who led choirs of angels in heaven, but pride got the best of him. He wanted to be the God of God, and because of that, he fell and he took a third of the angels with him. That's what this verse mentions in. His tail drew a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And there's an interesting detail as I read that. If Satan took a third with him, what does that mean? It means that two-thirds didn't go with him. So already we see that Satan is outnumbered in this cosmic conflict. He already can't win the battle. So as a punishment for their treachery, Satan along with these fallen angels are cast down out of heaven and they are what we know today as demons. Now, if you move forward a little bit in our text down to verse 7 and 9, we go from the very beginning of time to the very end of time. And in verses 7 through 9, we get a window into the tribulation period. Look at what the Bible says here. Now, a war arose in heaven. And Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. There was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. Now, as you read that passage right there, you see that during the tribulation, probably sometime towards the middle, Michael the archangel leads all of God's angelic warriors to gain the upper hand over Satan and his forces and you just thought the new Marvel movie was epic. You just thought George Lucas had a good idea with Star Wars. Friends, we haven't seen anything like that come upon our world, but one day the Bible says that this cosmic conflict is coming to a place nearby. The Bible says that they're going to throw Satan and his demons out of the heavenly realm for good, and they will be confined to the earth for the rest of that three and a half year period of the tribulation. John Phillips said this in his wonderful commentary on Revelation. He said, this is the second in a series of falls that marks Satan's career. Already he's been cast out of heaven into the air. Next he will be cast out of the air to the earth. And then from the earth to the abyss and finally from the abyss to the lake of fire forever. Somebody in the house of God say, Amen. Amen. You see why the enemy doesn't want the Christian to read the book of Revelation? Because he doesn't want anybody to read the book which foretells his doom and defeat. That's why this book says in the very beginning, chapter 1, verse 3, Blessed is he who reads, because friend, when you read the end of the book, you're encouraged to know that Jesus wins, and if you're on Jesus' side, you're a winner too. Amen? The dragon's dishonored partners. His dominating power. Then notice verse 4, his diabolical plan. A diabolical plan. Verse 4, it said there that the dragon stood before the woman. Who's the woman? Israel. Who's about to give birth? Who's the child? Jesus Christ. So that when she bore her child, he might devour it. From the very beginning, Satan's purpose was to destroy the child of this woman. And I would submit to you that much of human history is a running commentary on this cosmic conflict. You see, for centuries, Satan has tried relentlessly to thwart the plan of God by persecuting God's people, that's the Jews, And he knew that the Jewish people would be the vessel through which would come the Redeemer, Jesus Christ. And if he could destroy the woman or the child, then he knew he might have a chance to stop God's plan from taking place. Now, we read all about this in the very first book of the Bible. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, probably the seed plot of the whole Bible right there, God gives a declaration of war against the serpent in that passage. It's right after the fall. The crown has fallen off Adam's head. He's given over dominion of the earth over to the enemy. But God turns to the serpent in that passage, and look at what He says there. He says, Behold, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. That's the first prophecy ever mentioned in the Scriptures. You see, at that moment, Satan knew he was living on borrowed time and understanding the prophecy of the Redeemer, the adversary now tries to do everything in his power to eradicate the Jewish nation, to stop the child from ever being born. How did he do? Well, in the very next chapter in Genesis 4, you see the first murder. Cain kills his brother Abel. And when that failed... A few chapters later, Satan so corrupts the human race that God has to send a flood to wipe the slate clean and remove mankind from the earth. But Satan could not touch one man who walked with God. His name was Noah, who kept the promise of God alive. Then when you get to the book of Exodus, you find out that here is Pharaoh who is now committing infanticide against the Jewish people who are now enslaved under them for 400 years. He has all the Jewish baby boys killed in the Nile River. But once again, God outsmarts the enemy because he rises up a deliverer. His name was Moses, a little baby, on the Nile River in a basket. Then you keep reading the Old Testament and you go to the book of Esther and there you see that despot Haman who hatches this plot to try and have all the Jews eradicated who are living there in Persia. But there was a little princess girl and a Jewish man named Mordecai and Esther who found out what his plan was. And Haman ends up being hanged on the gallows that he had hoped the Jews would be hung upon. And then when the Redeemer finally does come into the earth, there at Bethlehem, what do we see there in Matthew chapter 2? We see the enemy try and strike again as God raises up Jesus Christ but we see that King Herod, there, because of fear and because of the threat that he perceived upon his throne, had all the Jewish baby boys under two years old murdered. But God, again, was one step ahead of the enemy, wasn't he? He gave Joseph a dream and said, Joseph, get out of here, go to Egypt, and there stay until I tell you to come back. And friend, I'm telling you that Satan found out through history as he failed and failed and failed that his arms were too short to box with God. You see, friend, my God doesn't play checkers. He plays chess and he's ten steps ahead. So not only is Satan outnumbered, but he's also been outsmarted. God is always ahead of His enemy. There's a wonderful book written a few years ago by Dr. Erwin Lutzer. And in that book, he tells about an artist who painted a very interesting painting of a man playing chess with the devil. And in the painting, the devil is one, or so it seems, he has declared checkmate. And you can read the panic all over the Face of the young man as he's reflected in horror over those ominous ramifications that will come from his defeat. But Erwin Lutzer said that as that painting hung there in the art gallery, that one day a champion chess player, a man named Paul Morphy, went into the museum and he was fascinated by this painting of the devil and this man playing chess. And he said that he stood there for hours and this world champion chess player started calculating in his head all of the moves that could be made or played ahead in his mind. Is there anything that could be done in this situation? And suddenly, the light bulb came on in his mind, and he said that he screamed there in the middle of the art gallery, young man, it's not checkmate. There's one more move you can make. Here's what Erwin Lutzer said. You see, the painter has overlooked a one possible combination of moves. It was not checkmate after all. Just so, Jesus Christ came to this earth when it had looked as if as Satan had us in his grasp. But when Satan does his worst, God does his best. And in accordance with the plan worked out in eternity, Christ came to fight against the serpent and the Son of God declared checkmate and now today Satan is fresh out of moves. What a great promise. So we see this symbolic picture of Israel. We see the satanic persecutor of Israel. But then if we keep reading in verse 5, friend, this is where it gets really good. We see the sovereign prince of Israel. The sovereign prince. Now we know that the child in this passage represents Jesus. Because of the messianic clues that are peppered throughout this little verse here, we see three significant events that take place in the life of Christ right here in verse 5. And by the way, because the woman gives birth to Christ, we know that this can't be the church because the church doesn't give birth to Christ. Christ is the one who gives rise to the church. So what do we see here about the sovereign prince of Israel? Well, the first scene that we notice from this is the son at his incarnation, you see what it said in verse 5? She gave birth to a male child. What is that? That's the incarnation. That's Christmas. That's God in the manger. So, there in that humble manger, God enters this cosmic conflict as a combatant. And when God came, He chose the weakest form of all to enter, He came as a suckling babe. The Christ who commanded angel armies, the one who held galaxies in His hand, became small and dependent and helpless. And friend, the hinge of history is on the door of a Bethlehem stable. Everything changed when Jesus arrived. Why, we even date the timeline B.C. and A.D. And friend, when God came down, this whole world changed. Listen to what Paul said in Galatians 4.4. He said, when the fullness of time had come, God sent his son born of a woman. And, friend, what a blessing that is. That there was a red star on the calendar. In heaven, it had been decided in eternity past that that would be the moment that the infinite would become an infant. That the Messiah would rest in a manger. That God would step out of time and into eternity. It was deity in diapers, friend. It's the Son of the living God, Jesus Christ. It is incarnation. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word came and tabernacled among us Full of grace and truth. The Son at His incarnation. Do you believe it? Friend, I believe it all. Then we see the Son at His ascension. Notice the end of verse 5. It says there, She gave birth to a male child who was called up to God and to His throne. That's a phrase that links us to Jesus' ascension and His resurrection. After Jesus had fought His successful campaign against the devil, He defeated the enemy with His own weapon. He used death as a means of victory. And because of His death, we can have life. And because the tomb is empty, friend, there's a hope beyond the grave. And Jesus returned to heaven. Could you imagine the homecoming crowd that was there to receive the Son of Glory as He broke through the clouds? taking with Him His own blood to apply there on the mercy seat of God's tabernacle in heaven, forever taking care of your sin and my sin. Friend, I would have liked to have seen it as Jesus made His way up through the clouds. Oh, worthy is the Lamb who was and is and is to come the risen One, the righteous One, the One who sits now, ever interceding on your behalf and mine at the right hand of the Father. Friend, you can have access to to this God through the Son Jesus Christ. The Son at His ascension. The Son at His incarnation. And then the Son at His coronation. Look at what verse 5 says. And she bore a male child who was to rule all nations with a rod of iron. Now, This harkens back to the messianic overtones that we read in Psalm 2. And in Psalm 2, you have there a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. Here's what it says. The Lord has said to me, You are my Son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, And I will give to you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. And you shall break them with a rod of iron and you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. Friend, Jesus went from the cradle to the cross and now today He wears the crown Listen to me, the Jews hated him, the Romans didn't know what to do with him, Satan could not defeat him, the grave could not hold him, and this world has been forever changed by him. The Son of God at his coronation. Martin Luther said it years ago, he said the devil is God's devil. And friend, as I read this passage, I understand that the devil, the dragon is going down, and why in the world would you want to follow a loser? So at Christmas, an invasion force of one came to turn this tide in battle. At Calvary, the enemy received a mortal wound and by Easter Sunday... All His armies knew there was no way we could win. The tomb burst open. Death was arrested. Jesus came out in power and victory. And like my brother sings, heaven counted to three, I think to give the devil a head start so he could get out of town because Jesus Christ is victorious. The Son of God at His ascension and His coronation and His incarnation. Are you having a good time in the house of God today? Then we see here number four, as we close today, the supernatural protection of Israel. Bear with me just a few moments and we'll be finished. Verse 6, And the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Satan, even though he knows his days are limited, he doesn't give up. He's unable to stop Jesus at his birth, at his death, at his ascension, at his coming back. And so what does Satan do? He turns his assault and his hatred towards God's people. He's always hated Israel. He always will because they're the centerpiece of God's redemption program. It began with Abraham. They gave the world the Scriptures. They gave the world the Redeemer. And this verse right here, verse 6, I believe, looks forward to the last half of the tribulation period because we have that time, that time stamp, 1,260 days. That's three and a half years or 42 months. And what this verse tells us is that during that time, Satan is going to try one last ditch effort to cause as much bloodshed and mayhem as he can. But we read that despite his best efforts to try and eradicate God's people from the earth, he's not going to win and he's not going to succeed. See, these verses tell us that the woman flees into the wilderness where she is nourished by God. And so somewhere in the world, God is going to provide a refuge. God is going to provide a place for his people. And just as he provided for them during those 40 years, Years of wilderness wandering. God is going to protect and provide for His people those last three and a half years of the prophetic timeline. Some have speculated that the place where the Jewish people might hide is a place called Petra. It's in modern day Jordan. And if you've seen the movies, if you've seen like Indiana Jones, you've seen this place in the movies before. But some scholars speculate that from other clues in the Old Testament, that this might be the place where they find refuge during that time period. Now, as we come to the end of this passage, what's the takeaway? You say, Derek, that's great to know, but what's the big so what? How does it help me tomorrow morning? Well, the takeaway from this is very simple. The outcome of the cosmic conflict has already been decided. And try as he might, your worst enemy and my worst enemy cannot and will not win. Satan is a defeated foe and the only satisfaction that he has is taking people to hell with him. And here's the encouraging thing. As a soldier in the Lord's army, we report for duty to a commander-in-chief who's never lost a battle, who doesn't even have the word loss in his vocabulary. As we face our own personal battles and our own temptations, as we are on this battleground, this spiritual warfare, we don't fight for victory, we fight from victory that Jesus Christ has already given us. Let me finish with this today. Carolyn Arrens is a writer for Christianity Today. And she tells an interesting story in one of her articles about how the demise of the enemy can teach us a few things in the meantime. She says this, I loved Sundays when missionaries would come and share their stories. When missionaries were on furlough, they brought special reports in place of a sermon. She said, there was one missionary that came to my little Baptist church that I've never forgotten. They were a married couple stationed in a steamy jungle in Africa. And one day they told us that an enormous snake, much larger than a man, slithered its way right into their front door and kitchen. Terrified, they ran outside and searched for a local who might know how to get the snake out of their house. A machete-wielding neighbor came to the rescue, calmly marching into their house and decapitated the snake with one clean chop. The neighbor reemerged triumphant and assured the missionaries that the reptile was dead. But there was a catch, he said. It was going to take a while for the snake to realize he was dead. For the next several hours, the missionaries were forced to wait outside while the snake thrashed about, smashing into furniture, flailing against walls and windows, wreaking havoc until its body finally understood that there wasn't a head there. And then the missionary made this application. Don't you see it? Satan is a lot like that big old snake. He's already been defeated. At the cross in the empty tomb, Jesus dealt his death blow. In the meantime, he's going to do some damage. He's going to thrash around and hiss. But never forget, he's a goner and he's living on borrowed time. <laughs> Praise God today. Listen to me, friend. When you find yourself under satanic attack, and He wants to remind you of the failures of your past, you just remind Him of His future. Just like in any war, you have to pick a side. There's winners... And losers in this cosmic conflict. Each person must choose which side they will fight on. And friend, I've cast my ballot. I've put on the uniform. I've signed my name. I'm in the army of the Lamb of God. What about you? Once I drifted out in sin, had no joy and peace within, and my soul was burdened down with pride. Then my Savior came along and showed me I was wrong. Now I know I'm on the winning side. Yes, I'm on the winning side. Out in sin, no more will I abide. I've enlisted in the fight of the cause of truth and right. Praise the Lord, I'm on the winning side. Can you say it today, friend? Are you on the winning side? Do you know this Lamb, this precious Savior, this child who was born, who died, and who lives again for you and me?